If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open to First uh, Thessalonians. And we're in chapter 4 today. Last week, we, uh, uh, Pastor Brent looked at uh, God's will for us in our sanctification and how we should live uh, lives that are sexually moral. He got the fun passage. I don't get that one today. Um, today, we're going to look a little more broadly uh, at this idea of sanctification and how, how it works itself out uh, in our lives through love. If you remember a few weeks ago, I got the other uh, portion of First Thessalonians that talked about love. And today we're going to look at just really a life that is honoring to God and, and what that life uh, looks like uh, as we live to Christ uh, in a world that is increasingly uh, hostile to Christ. So we're going to start in verse 9 of chapter 4. And Paul writes this, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And so Paul, a few verses earlier, commended them uh, for their love and what a loving church that they were, and not only that they were loving within the church and loving the brothers and sisters, but they were loving outside of the church as well, and that they were being uh, loving to a, a culture that really at the end of the day was hostile towards them. And so here he's writing again concerning brotherly love and this, this idea of brotherly love. So it's so in the Greek language. There are different words for like, we have, we have one word in our uh, language in the English language that covers love and it could mean a whole bunch of different things. Uh, the Greeks had different words for different kinds of love and they had a specific love that was, was a brotherly love. So um, uh, phileo, we get the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right? Comes from that. And he says that they uh, have no need to be written about brotherly love, although Paul is writing them about that, uh, about their brotherly love. Uh, he says that they've been taught by God to love one another. Now, remember, this is a brand new church. This church has only been in existence for, for maybe a few months, maybe a little bit longer. We don't know exactly, but it's a pretty new church, right? They, they probably don't have a written mission statement. They probably don't have a written vision statement or, or goals, or uh, maybe they don't even have a statement of faith, probably, that's yet established. They probably haven't had uh, membership classes or anything like that. But Paul says that they don't need anyone to write them about brotherly love because they have been taught by God to love one another. And so somehow this church formed and developed uh, in the midst of this culture that was hostile to it. They were undergoing persecution, right? They were suffering for their faith right out of the gate. Can you imagine for you if when you came to faith in Christ that you immediately were persecuted for it? How do you think that would go, right? For some of us, that, that would be, you know, I, I didn't sign up for this. We might throw in the towel. But this church, under persecution, under suffering, continues not only to love one another, but they, but they love the culture that's hostile to them as well. So not only are they loving the brothers and the sisters within the church, that the, there's this idea that Paul is promoting of a familial kind of a love, the way that you would love a family member, right? And think about how things go in your family. There are probably some days where you don't so much feel it, right? Because of conflict and tension that can happen in families. Other days you, you might feel it a lot. Some days not so much. Well, the church I don't think is a whole lot different. Right. Sometimes, you know, you show up on a Sunday and, and you might feel a lot of love 
for the brothers and the sisters. And there might be other Sundays that you show up and it's all you could do to get yourself here. And, and maybe there's someone on the other side of the room that you have a conflict with that hasn't yet been resolved. Right? So our church family is not a whole lot different than our blood family probably uh, in that respect. But Paul is reminding them as he's writing them about the idea that love within the church body is very similar to the love that you have within your family. Right? Because we are the family of God. There's an implication when Paul says now concerning brotherly love. And the implication is that the people that you share this room with, the people whose homes that you go to for Bible study throughout the week, the people uh, with whom we all fellowship together, that there's an implication that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and Scripture has a lot to say about that. And so Paul is commending them for the love that's happening within the church. Then he goes on to say that indeed, it's what you're doing to all of the brothers throughout Macedonia. So not just within their own little church, right? What Paul says here. He's implying that their church does not live in a bubble. Churches sometimes do that, don't they? I don't know what what your church background or your church experience has been. I've been in the church my whole life since I was a little kid. And and I've seen a lot of things and been in some different churches over the years and seen how they they operate. And sometimes churches can live in a bubble, right? We want to kind of huddle together, have this holy huddle, and we don't want to be stained by what's out there. Right? We don't want to have the bad influences in our lives from what's out there, so we're just going to huddle up together. And Paul says here that indeed that they're loving the brothers or the brothers and sisters all throughout Macedonia. In other words, their church has not formed a holy huddle in the midst of their persecution. Right? Imagine if, if our church was persecuted, we might even be more apt to kind of huddle together. But they, they didn't do that. They're loving the brothers and the sisters or the other churches throughout their region. So they're known among the other churches throughout their region and they're loving the other churches throughout their region. And so again, there's an implication here that this love that we're called to uh, as believers is not just a huddle, but, but, it, but it starts within the church and it filters outside of the church. Uh, in this case to other churches, but in the previous pastors that I got to preach on also to others who are not part of the church, that there's a love for those that God loves. And so even though Paul is commending him, commending them for this, he says that we urge you, brothers, even though you're already doing this well, he says to do this more and more in verse 10. So you're doing a great job. You're known for being loving. I'm commending you for your love. But Paul says, don't stop. Don't maintain the status quo, but but to continue to love more and more. And as we think about what this is, we have to define love because our society has a very jacked up version of what love is. Right? In our society, love is, is very much transactional. Right? You do for me, I'll do for you. If you bring some benefit to my life, I'll love you. If you go out of your way for me, I'll go out of my way for you, right? That's kind of our view of love. Our, our society views love as, like, I, I love people like me, right? At the end of the day, there's nobody in this world that I love more than me. And if you're even a little bit like me, then maybe I'll love you too, right? It's a transaction. It's a transaction. But biblical love, Christ. Christ's love for us is not a transaction. Christ did for us when we did not do for him. He loved us, the Bible says, while we were still his enemies. 
Matter of fact, the Bible calls us, like Christ, to love our enemies. Right? That's a hard, hard thing. One of the hardest things in all of Scripture, I think, to do is, is the call to enemy love. But it's what we're called to do. And so we have to understand love in its context. What love is? Love is a choice long before it's a feeling. And I'm not saying that feelings aren't involved in love. But love is a choice long before it's a feeling. Because there, there are days, as I have already mentioned, that I'm just, I just don't feel it. And that's probably true for you too, where you just don't feel it. Yet we make the choice to love those that are close to us, even when they're difficult to love. Knowing that like I'm difficult to love at times as well. 1 John 2, starting in verse 15, says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And what we take from this passage that John wrote, very simply, as he says, don't love the world or the things of the world. And then he defines the things of the world, the desires of the flesh. In other words, the things that, that make us feel good. The desires of the eyes, the things that we can see. And the pride of life, the feeling that we get from the things that we see and the things that make us feel good. Right? And, and you can fill in the blanks with all kinds of things that fit within those categories. And he says, don't, don't love those things. In fact, he says, if you do love those things, the love of the Father isn't in you. In other words, if, if those are the things that you love, you don't know Christ-like love. And then he reminds us that the world, along with those things that he mentioned, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's passing away. But whoever does the will of God, in other words, whoever loves with a Christ-like love, whoever submits their life to the rule and authority of Christ, says that the will of God abides forever. Christ-like love is not fading. It's not passing away. Christ-like love has, has little to do with the things that we feel and the things that we see and the happiness that we may take from those worldly things. He goes on to say, 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and who murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So John tells us the message that we've heard from the beginning is, is one of love, that we should love one another. The Bible tells us not that God is loving, but God is love. He's the, the perfect embodiment of love. And we, we can't properly define love without having God in the equation. We can't do it. And that's the message that we've heard from the beginning. And then he cites this example of Cain and Abel, right? The, the brothers, sons of Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 4. Four chapters into human history as we know it, a brother kills a brother. That didn't take long at all. God created and there was a time where everything was good and right and perfect in the world. And, and through Adam and Eve's actions, sin entered the world. And, and not long after that, brother kills brother. And, and John says, 
Don't be like that. Don't be like that. And, and I, I doubt that there's anyone here that, that has killed a sibling, but, but we've got to be reminded that Jesus tells us in his Sermon on the Mount that if you have anger in your heart, that you might as well be guilty of murder because that's where it starts. And John says, don't, don't be like that. Don't be like that. He also says, reminds us, don't be surprised that the world hates us. Remember, this church is being uh, commended for their love for the brothers inside the church and the love for the, the people who are outside of the church, their, their persecutors, their enemies. And John tells us, don't be surprised that we face persecution. Don't be surprised that we have opposition. Don't be surprised that the world hates us. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the world hates Christ. Therefore, the world hates those who represent Christ. And that picture is becoming more and more clear as time goes on. And John tells us, don't be surprised by that. And here, here's how you know that you've passed from death to life. In other words, here's how you know that you have a faith in you that's real and authentic. Here's how you know that you have submitted to Christ's rule and authority in your life. And it's because you love the brothers or the brothers and sisters. You love the people sitting in this room, even when they're hard to love. And let's be real, like we're all hard to love at different times and for different reasons, right? But John reminds us that, that the marker of our faith being real is that we have this capacity to love those that are difficult to love. And not in a transactional sort of way, not because they've brought benefit into our life, but because we've made a choice understanding that Christ made a choice to love us while we were his enemies and, and that we do that out of a desire to reflect his goodness and his grace. And so we choose to love. And, and John says that whoever does not love abides in death. He goes on in chapter 3, verse 16 to say this, that by this we know love that he, meaning Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the kind of love that Paul is commending the Thessalonians for. This is the kind of brotherly love that he says, I, you don't need me to write you about this. You don't need me to teach you about this. God has taught you about this kind of love, the kind of love that lays down its life for someone else. John gives us this example of love that, that if anyone has the world's goods and sees a brother or a sister in need yet closes his heart against him, that's a clear-cut sign, John would say, that God's love does not abide in that person. But the opposite of that is true that, it, that if you do see a brother or a sister who has needs and you have the ability to meet those needs and you take it upon yourself to do so out of the kindness of your heart, that's a clear-cut sign that God's love does abide in you. And then he challenges us. He, he calls his, his readers little children. Little children. Don't just talk a good talk. Don't just say that you're loving, but actually be loving in deed and in truth. And so again, this is the kind of love that these people are being commended for by Paul, this brand new church plant in Thessalonica. They've got love right in the middle of their persecution. 
Then Paul seems to take a left turn as we head into verse 11. Commends them for their love. Then he says, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Now, think about this. He, He commands them to love. He commends them for love and tells them, keep loving more. And then in verse 11, it seems like he says, live quietly and keep to yourself. How do you love people when, when he's then on the heels of that says, keep to yourself? And I don't think that's what he's saying. Many commentators have a belief that at this time and place in history, that there were a group of people that were so infatuated with the second coming of Christ that they quit their jobs. And they were so extreme that they drew attention away from Jesus and on to themselves. We might say that these were kind of the religious weirdos of Paul's day, right? I'm messing with my mic here. You all, you all know the type. The religious extremists that kind of embarrass the rest of us Christians. Like the, that's who these people seem to be. They were so infatuated on the second coming of Christ that they quit their jobs and they just drew attention to themselves. They would stand out on the street corners and shout uh, and say weird things. Um, they were religious fanatics. And so here, Paul, I don't think is saying, keep to yourself and don't, don't bother anybody. I think he's saying, as a Christian, don't shine the spotlight on yourself. Because as a Christian, it's not about you, right? Our Christianity is about, not the Christian, but about the Christ. And I think this is what Paul's reminder is here when he says to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. This call to mind one's own affairs, I don't think is a call to solitude. It's not a a call to a monastic kind of a life where you would keep to yourself. As we've already seen in our study through this book, we've seen that God has designed us for community. He's designed us to be in one another's lives. And so if that's not what it could be, if this isn't a call to a a monastic kind of a life, what, what could it be? Well, we get a little bit of a glimpse in 2 Thessalonians 3, a little spoiler alert because we're not there yet, but Paul calls out people in in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 for being busybodies. He calls them out for meddling in one another's lives, and we'll see more about that as we get to that passage. But but I have to believe that that these two things are probably connected. This was maybe a chink in the armor of this uh, otherwise seemingly pretty solid church, is that they had people who would meddle in one another's lives. Now, now there's a bit of a line here because we are called to be involved in one another's lives. But there's a difference between that and meddling in one another's lives. And I think Romans 14 might give us a little bit of clarity in this. You don't have to turn there, but, but in Romans 14, it's a chapter that's devoted to um, Paul writing about people who have different kind of liberties of conscience, we might call it. And so you have one person, Paul says, uh, who would view a particular day as holy, right? In our, in our day today, we might say, you know, people might view the Sabbath as a holy day or a particular holiday as, as, as a, an especially holy day. And then you have other people who uh, maybe don't view them quite to that degree, right? You might have people who would refuse to go out to eat on the Sabbath because the Sabbath is a holy day. And, and, and if I go out to eat on the Sabbath, I'm forcing somebody else to work and to serve me. You might have another person who has the liberty of conscience to say, you know what, it's okay to do that. He also talks about, in Romans 14, passing judgment on one another because of what they eat. It was a popular thing in his day where when people would make 
sacrifices to idols in pagan rituals, they would sacrifice animals. And some people would think that meat that was left on the altar, that's tainted meat and it shouldn't be for consumption. And other people are like, hey, free barbecue. And they would go to the altar and grab (laughs) the meat and they would eat it and it wouldn't be a big deal. And then you had groups of people that were passing judgment on one another. I I can't believe you would do that. Well, I can't believe you wouldn't do that. And Paul in Romans 14, he says this, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind of what they do. The one who observes the day observes it to honor the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor to the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we were all, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And Paul goes on to say that actually, so we have kind of the legalist and, and the antinomian. We might say the one who, who's really uh, kind of uptight and has has a conscience that, that says we can't do all kinds of things, and another person that would say anything goes. And Paul would actually call the more legalistic one in this passage the weaker brother. And he would say the one who is more liberal. Uh, in their faith is the stronger brother. But at the end of the day, he just says, get along and stop meddling in one another's lives and stop passing judgment on one another and just trust that whatever you all are doing, that everybody's doing it unto the Lord and to honor him. I think this is what Paul is talking about to the Thessalonians when he says, mind your own affairs. He's not saying to be disconnected or uninvolved from one another's lives, but don't be busybodies and don't meddle. He reminds them to work with their hands as they've been instructed. It was thought by the Greeks of Paul's day that manual labor was kind of lowly. We might say in our day the difference between what we would consider blue-collar work and white-collar work. right? And, and so the Greeks had this idea that, that any kind of work that engaged your mind and that used your intellect, that was the highest form of work. And so in our day, that would be a desk job. Right, maybe a CEO of a company or something like that. But if you were the janitor of that company and had to use your hands and do physical labor and scrape gum off the floor and mop and clean toilets and things like that, it, was, it, would, it would have been thought in Paul's day that was the lowliest form of work uh, and it wasn't even meaningful kind of work. And so Paul, calling the brothers and sisters, calling the Christians to work with their hands, that was a big statement in his day. Paul is saying... Don't strive necessarily to be the CEO, although I don't think that would be a bad thing in and of itself. But he's saying it's, it's okay. It's okay to be the janitor. You don't have to be the CEO. It's okay to be the janitor. Paul's making a controversial statement here in calling Christians to what was considered kind of low and, and demeaning kind of work. And there's an implication in Paul making this statement. This completely went against the cultural norms of Paul's day in this Greek society to say that it's okay to engage in lowly or seemingly lowly and meaningful, meaningless work. And I think an honest read of the Bible would tell us that there's no such thing as lowly work and there's no such thing as meaningless work. There are all kinds of jobs in society that have to be done. And there's dignity in doing those kinds of jobs, whatever they are. 
many years ago, I had a, had a job for about a year, maybe a little over a year, that I considered at that time the most menial job that I've ever had. I took the job because prior to that, uh, I was in the mortgage business. My wife was a real estate broker, and that rug just got jerked out from under us overnight. Worked really well until it just stopped working all of a sudden. And I had to take a job. I, I, in my, my entire life, I've gotten every job I had interviewed up to that point. I've never, I've never been told no for a job interview up to that point in my life. And for months, I could not find a job for anything. I was told no, and that, that was just a weird experience for me. And I took this job, uh, they said yes to me, and I took this job very begrudgingly because I thought it was beneath me. And so I begrudgingly took this job, and it was during the course of this year that, that God just chipped away at me about work and the meaning of work. And by the end of my time there, I realized that, that it wasn't a menial job. It wasn't a meaningless job. It wasn't beneath me. Right? God provided for my family through that lowly, menial job. He provided for us. And so what Paul is saying here in this, this command to them to work with your hands is he's like, contribute to society in this way. Don't be like these religious fanatics, these weirdos that quit their job in order to pursue religious fanaticism, but work with your hands and contribute to society, contribute to your family, contribute to the church. One commentator have this to say about this passage. It says that God raises the bar when it comes to how we live and work. Nothing about our lives is insignificant. Everything we do sends a message to the world about what we believe about God. From our words to our work, we are accountable to God for how we live. If our faith is real on Sunday at church, then it should be just as real on Monday in the office. The most tangible way that we can express love to others is passionately to live out our faith in the world. And we do this not by being a nuisance to those within the church, but by being serious about how faithfully we live our lives outside the church. We'll talk about this in a minute. But Paul is in this call. He's really calling them to, to support themselves. These religious fanatics that quit their jobs to pursue their fanaticism, it seems that they were a drain on the church, expecting that the church would take care of them because of their religious fanaticism. That just wasn't fair. It wasn't fair to do that. And I love this statement from this commentator that if our faith is real on Sunday at church, it should be just as real on Monday in the office or the work truck or whatever it is, wherever you go to work. This is what Paul is calling them to. And then he gives, as we move into verse 12, an underlying reason for all of this. Verse 12 says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. That statement that you may walk properly before outsiders, again, has some implications to that statement. One of the implications to that statement is that we actually, as Christians, have interaction with outsiders. Right? That, that again, we're not here in a holy huddle living in our bubble. There's an implication that, that we go out from here and we go out into the world and we engage in work and we do the things that we do and we actually have real honest interaction with people who maybe are not like us. Can you imagine that? The Christian life is more than doing religious things with religious people living in a religious bubble like we sometimes tend to do. Strongly implied here is that we would have meaningful and intentional contact with people outside of the church 
And the other implication here is that we witness to people. He says that you may walk properly before outsiders. So there's a proper way as Christians for us to engage with those people out there. There's a proper way for us to engage with those people out there, and it's to love them with the love of Christ, as we've already talked about. So not only do we get the responsibility of declaring the truth of the gospel, which we do here from the pulpit on Sunday mornings. Hopefully you all do that throughout the week. But we also get the incredible privilege of displaying the truth of the gospel in the way that we live, the things that we do. You've heard me talk about this before, but you you know the saying that says, preach the gospel when necessary, use words. And I'm a staunch advocate that it's always necessary to use words. Right? We can take a statement like that and say, oh, I'm off the hook. I don't have to say anything. I just have to show it with my life. No, you have to say something. Right? It's part of the Christian life. Right? It's always necessary to use words to preach the gospel. But it's also necessary to have a life that lives the gospel, that shows what you say is true, that authenticates what you say as being true. And this is what Paul is talking about when he talks about walking properly before outsiders. And then he ends this passage by saying, be dependent upon no one. And immediately I think about um, some different passages in Scripture. I think about uh, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost when the church was formed. Do you remember what happened there on the day of Pentecost? The very end of Acts chapter 2, Luke talks about how people were loving one another, people were coming together, that people who had excess would sell their excess and then they would bring the proceeds from those sales and just put it into a pot. And that there were other people that didn't have much and they had need. And so the people that had more would give to the people that had less. Right? There was kind of a dependency that was happening there. And, and we're told in, in Acts chapter 2 that this dependency that was happening, this kind of give and take that was happening, was something that was intriguing to those who were outside of the church. And those outside of the church looked in and, and they would look at that and say, I don't know what's going on there, but I think I need to go check this out. And as a result of that, we're told that, that God added to the number of the church daily those who were coming to faith because of this kind of give and take that was happening. I think about Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, it says to bear one another's burdens and, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians chapter 6, verse 5 says, seemingly in contradiction that each one should bear his own load. So we're told even in the same passage to bear one another's burdens, but also we're told as individuals to bear your own load. And, and I found some examples from a commentary that maybe helps bring some clarity to this. Here are a few examples. A young guy who constantly gets up late for work or school because he stays up playing video games at night asks you to wake him up every morning so he doesn't lose his job or flunk out of school. The guy who spends all of his money on beer and cigarettes and lottery tickets and refuses to look for a job and is always asking you to borrow money. Or how about a business, businessman who works 12-hour days, including Saturdays, and asks you to take his son to all of his baseball practices and games? Those would be an example when Paul says each one should bear his own load. Those are examples of bearing your own load. Here's a few more. A married couple has three children, and one day there's an accident. One of the parents dies in a car wreck. The remaining parent 
and the kids have needs. That's a burden that we should all take part in bearing for brother or sister. A husband abandons his wife for another woman, leaving her with four kids, and she needs help meeting daily responsibilities. That's an example of a burden that we ought to bear for one another. An older faithful church member gets sick and is having a hard time. She needs help with meals and transportation and occasional living expenses. That's a burden that we ought to bear for one another. Or as we heard today, a a widow twice over who needs help clearing her driveway because she can't physically do it. That's a burden that we ought to bear for one another. Not, Not a load that somebody needs to be responsible for for themselves. And so in this call that Paul has in verse 12, all these things about love, like love in the church, love outside of the church, continue to love, you're doing good at it, but do better at it and do it more and more. The reason for that is that we may walk properly before outsiders, that we may have a strong witness both in word and deed, in declaration and in display, so that outsiders can see and hear the truth of the gospel. And that we can be dependent upon no one, not because we're prideful, right? Not because we we really need help, but we don't want to ask for it. We say, no, I can do it myself. Not because we're independent, but part of this being unfairly dependent upon other people, it affects our witness. It affects our witness. It also affects our witness when we step up to bear burdens of others that we ought to bear, that we ought to rightfully bear because we're in fellowship with one another. And so this call to living a life, displaying love and declaring love at every opportunity that we get, says something about who Christ is to those who watch us, to to a watching world, to those around us. I had an opportunity here recently at work. I have a day job, and I deal with a lot of people in my day job. And I had a phone call, I don't know, a couple of months ago maybe, uh, from an angry client. Uh, actually, I had called him to initiate the conversation, and it just escalated, and he got angry at me really, really quickly. And on this phone call, just yelling at me, he says, you need to shut up right now and listen to me. And in my mind, I'm just thinking, like, we're, we're adults. Right? We're, we're not Like, what adult says that to another adult? I'm just you know, thinking this in my mind. And, and in, in the moment, God afforded me grace to, to not respond in kind like I really wanted to. And, and, and as it happened to be, the, the reason for arguing, like I was 100% right about it, right? And, and if you know me, I love to point out when I'm 100% right. Like, I love a good I told you so. There's nothing better in the world for me than a good I told you so. And in my mind, I'm just one more I told you so away from everybody listening to me about everything all of the time. That's how my mind thinks. And I was right about this. And, and in the moment, like I said, just you know, God showed me grace and uh, allowed me to, to respond in a calm way without responding in kind. Um, but I had to inform some other people that this happened. And one guy that I informed about who had authority over this person that told me to shut up, he's like, do you want an apology because I'll make him apologize. And I just said, you know, I'm not, I'm not, not looking for an apology. I'm just making you aware, like, we can't have these kinds of interactions from day to day. We just can't, can't work this way. I'm not looking for an apology or anything. And he says, well, if, if, if I can get this guy to come back to apologize to you, will you forgive him? And I said, well, of course. Why, why wouldn't I forgive him? And 
this guy was blown away. He's like, I would never forgive anybody that says that to me. Why, why would you forgive him? And it was a gospel moment where I got to say, well, here's what I believe about forgiveness. And here's why I would forgive this really at the end of the day, small thing, right? This, this guy didn't like, I'm not losing any sleep over this. He didn't wrong me in a way that I can't get over. But at the end of the day, I was able to share, you know, Christ has forgiven me. Like I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor, and here's what I believe about forgiveness. And here's why I would extend forgiveness. Matter of fact, whether the apology ever comes or not, it doesn't matter. I've forgiven him already. And I don't share this story to, to pat me on the back. This, this was a moment where, you know, I, I would have responded very differently if not for the grace of God in that, in that moment. Uh, and it led to not only being able to talk a talk, but being able to walk a walk that authenticated the talk, if that makes sense. These are the kinds of things that Paul is calling the Thessalonians to, to walk properly before outsiders. To be dependent upon no one in an unfair sort of a way that you would bear your own load as part of your witness. It's part of your own witness to walk responsibly in the world. It's part of your witness to show up for work and do a good job. It's part of your witness to to be a family person and to, to lead and provide for your family. It's part of your witness, how you interact with people inside the church and outside of the church. And these are the things that Paul is reminding us of. So as we bring this to a close today, I think what's up for consideration for all of us is that how is it that we're loving people around us? Are we making the sometimes difficult choice, even when the feeling isn't there, to love those inside the church and to love those outside the church? Father, we're thankful for today. We're thankful that we don't have to figure out on our own what love is, that we have the perfect embodiment of love in Jesus Christ. And so pray that you would help us to be reminded from day to day what that embodiment of love did for us so that we can embody love as best as we can as imperfect, broken, and flawed people to a world around us so that not only can we show people who Christ is, but that we would also be able to declare the truth of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And like the church at Thessalonica, that that we might be commended for our love, that we might be commended uh, and known in our community as a church that loves not only inside the four walls, but outside the four walls as well. And that you would help us to do that uh, as a witness to the truth of the gospel. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.